We're talking about resistance and we're talking about failure this week. It's time for a strength check. So what's up, everybody? This is another episode of Strength Check. I'm Dr. Andy Wilzak. Thank you, as always, for listening. So this week, uh, we were originally going to come to you live, L-I-V-E, live from MipaCon in Scranton, Pennsylvania, except it was really loud and there wasn't really a good place to set up the mic, so it's not going to happen. It didn't happen. Sorry about that. Uh, I do want to say thank you to the people who organized the con for giving us a table and dealing with some of the confusion with that. Thank you to everybody who stopped by to learn about Play for Progress. Um, Hopefully we'll be seeing you around. So this week we got to talk about failure. Um, And we're talking about failure because it was a question sent in a couple of episodes ago from one of our listeners, Pete, who had this idea or a suggestion for me that maybe we should talk about failure in a gaming context and how this can teach us a little bit about life. So we're going to go into that in a second. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about President William McKinley, who was himself kind of a failure, I guess. I don't know. It's McKinley's a weird, weird guy. So we got that. So let's talk about how how games teach us about failure. And I didn't talk about this the first time that, that Pete mentioned it to me because I wanted to give it some thought. It's not one of those questions that you can just kind of like fluff off, right? Um, it's pretty heavy. This is a pretty intense idea. So I think probably the way Pete was thinking about it was that, you know, just like sports and any kind of competition, games can teach us that, you know, there's always a bigger fish and that you're not always going to win. And that's true. That's maybe one of the the very few upsides about competition in general is that it's important to learn pretty early on that you're never going to win all the time and that if you think you're going to win all the time then you're (laughs) you're in for a surprise but i think with games and maybe to a lesser degree with sports but i think especially with games the lessons that it teaches us about failure i think are a little bit more profound and i think that it teaches us some stuff that's a little bit more structural I think that we could have the same conversation with sports too if people were willing to have it, but unfortunately, I think that most people aren't really willing to be exactly critical of sports. There are lots of people who want to scream from the rooftops all of the benefits of being involved in sports, especially for young people, um, without really wanting to acknowledge any of the, the myriad drawbacks to youth sports. So... Games, though, um, can can teach us a lot about failure and can teach us a, a lot about, you know, while there is always a bigger fish, um, to quote your boy Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, <laughs> there's also lots of opportunities in life to fail when it's not on, like, your own merit, right? And I think that's kind of what the original question might have been about. I don't know. I'm, I know 
Pete well enough to know that I will be corrected when I am wrong about this. Um, but anyway, like games aren't just about merit. So there are games of skill and there are games of chance, right? And even games of chance, people still think that it's actually a game of skill. And there are all kinds of people who've spent so many hours and hours and hours watching Texas Hold'em games on ESPN. Um, I myself was one of those people once upon a time, as was Pete, uh, trying to act like there was some sort of way to control all of the randomness and all of the chaos that's kind of a part of that game. Um, and so maybe if you're like thinking about this in terms of like a broke, woke, whatever else kind of meme, um, the most obvious take is to say that, you know, in games that involve that randomness, then of course you're going to fail for reasons that aren't based on your merit. And at that point, the failure becomes like in any other kind of gambling, I guess, like, did you take the chance wisely or not? And that's true, right? We take risks that aren't wise all the time and fail and then wonder why that happened. Um, but I think it's even bigger than that. I think that games can teach us that failure isn't our fault because gaming can teach us that sometimes really it's rigged against us. <laughs> that we didn't fail because we did something wrong. We failed because we played in the first place. That this idea of a meritocracy doesn't exist. That there are people who can pay their way to the top. That there are games that are so fundamentally flawed, that are broken, that you try to play and you can win, but what are you winning, right, if you're winning a broken game? I think gaming can teach us that people cheat all the time and that maybe your failure is just because you didn't have the Contra code, whatever the real-life equivalent of the Contra code is. So gaming can teach us a lot about, about all of that, right? That the world just isn't set up for people to succeed, and in fact, the system is really rigged in favor of people who can pay to play, people who have those cheat codes, people who have some kind of insider knowledge. People who can, who can have their older brother beat a level for them that they can never finish. So the other thing here with failure too is, is the idea of the rules. And I think that sports would be another opportunity to have a good metaphor here, but I think that so many people, again, just aren't really willing to think critically about sports in the world, especially in the United States, that blindly just assume that this is this amazing life lesson when it's really mostly garbage <laughs> send me your takes at hey dr will h-e-y-d-r-w-i-l on twitter so this idea about the rules right as i'm prepping for this revolutions class that i'm teaching coming up and i just finished my duncan series on the mexican revolution you learn that that cliche that the rules are made to be broken um, isn't really a cliche. That's like a life lesson. There are so many people in powerful positions that have have known exactly what the rules are, like the rules that they're supposed to follow. The law and order dictate that is supposed to guide society and completely ignored it, did whatever they wanted, and then rewrote the rules to fit what they had done and rewrote the rules to change that, uh, to change the narrative of what they had done to make it sound like they had actually done everything within the rules and had done everything the right way in the first place. So games teach us that, right? So when you're playing Monopoly and you have all of these like home rules that you make up that nobody could possibly replicate, 
And if you try to explain to a friend or a cousin who comes over to play, like it's impossible to do. Like there's a lesson there, <laughs> right? There's a lesson in there somewhere. Um, as I try to keep my composure as my computer freaks out for some reason. It's been one of those weeks, people. So let's think about this in, in like individual terms, right? I have been playing different types of games my entire life. Most of us have been playing different types of games our entire life. Video games, board games. I play games with my kids now. We make up games to play with each other. And like that lesson of failure is still there. And as a powerful person in my household, I can cheat to make sure that I win every time against my five-year-old if I want to. Or I can let her win every time because I'm going to catch hell from her if I don't. But what does this say about how we take chances and how we approach this idea of failure when it has like real-life consequences? A number of years ago, somebody um, told me, or I, I learned indirectly, that uh the best possible outcome I can hope to have in my career is that I I manage to make things a tiny bit better, right? Looking at the, the huge vat of suffering out there, if I can empty out maybe a thimbleful, that would be a monumental success. And that even though I have so many ideas and so many programs and policies and solutions and things that I, I know in my heart would help make the world a better place and alleviate suffering and alienation for so many people and make everything run so much more smoothly that the odds of my ever being able to actually do any of that are very, very slim. And the number of people that I think I'm going to be able to help who I actually am not going to be able to help because either they are not going to listen to me, which might be some of you listening to this right now, or because they're not ready to be helped in the first place and aren't going to listen to me for that reason, or just want nothing to do with me, which is, I know, really hard to understand. Like, why would anybody like, want anything to do with me? Then I'm not going to make a huge difference. I'm not going to be able to help out a ton, a ton of people. So because of that, then, my career almost from the get-go is going to be a failure, right? I'm I'm trying to... My, my career is yelling at the moon not to come up. I'm yelling at the tides not to come in. I'm yelling at storms not to come in. I'm trying to control the universe, and I am just one man. But in spite of that, um, you still have to like get up every day and live your life and, and do your stuff. And in my career, I have had more failures than I can count. I have had so many students that I, I feel like I disappointed. Um, probably a ton of professors and teachers really going back through my entire career, uh, way back to when I was a little guy, that I probably let down immensely. Papers that have been rejected, book ideas rejected, job applications turned down, girls who said no, um, a house that we really wanted to buy and we didn't have the chance to buy it. I, phew, failures too numerous to list and you get up the next day and you take more chances so the way i see it is that like i'm almost at like failure saturation right one more failure one more rejection isn't really going to make a difference um in anything for me and it's not going to make a difference in anything for you either right you those of you listening to this have failed plenty of times in your life 
and it sucks and it hurts and it's sad and it's depressing and you don't want to move and you just want to wrap yourself in your depression blanket and, and look like somebody in a commercial for antidepressants, right? With a Charlie Brown rain cloud following you around. And I get that. It's super easy to do. But you failed so many times already. Take another chance. Like, what difference does it make if you fail again and again and again and again? Right? Who cares? It doesn't matter. Because you're going to keep failing. Right? And so, to me, there's freedom in that. Like, that's an incredibly liberating idea. That because life, by definition, is insanely hard, and because people, by definition by our very nature, are going to reject us, reject ourselves, go against our best interest, then, you know, you don't want to be the real-life equivalent of that person who always wins. You know people like that who try to be like that, and they're insufferable, and they're miserable. (laughs) They're impossible to be around. You don't want to be that person. So you got to take those chances. You got to apply for that job that you think you're not qualified for. You have to talk to that person you think is not going to want anything to do with you. You have to take those chances. You got to network to get work. You got to hustle. And you're going to fail sometimes. So what? Makes for some stories, I guess. It makes for some what ifs. You get to have that story about the one that got away. So just because somebody's going to say no doesn't mean that you shouldn't take any chances just because the game is rigged against you and there are people with the contra code out there who are going to cheat to win doesn't mean that you're not capable of shocking the world and beating them at their own game either so that's what i think about failure So let's talk about President William McKinley. Now, I don't know about you, but President McKinley wasn't somebody that I really remember being taught a whole lot about going through school. Maybe I missed those days. I don't know. But he's not somebody who's in like the pantheon of great presidents, right? He's not in the Washington, Lincoln, Roosevelt kind of discussion. I mean, I wonder how many people know anything about William McKinley. Like, if you went out and polled 100 people and did one of those man-on-the-street things in a big city, and, like, what do you think about the legacy of William McKinley? I wonder how many people actually know, would even recognize that name. Even though he was assassinated, I wonder how many people would actually recognize that name. And so for me personally, like, starting this journey about crime in the 21st century, the original idea was to do everything that I could to run away from um, federal politics. I thought that I could have I could have an entire book that was just like trial after trial, you know, mass media story after mass media story. And the more that I researched, the more I came to accept the fact that the story of crime in the 20th century is really, in large part, a story of federal politics and federal policy and presidential politics and ways in which this much larger structural, 
cultural forces at work in the United States can come to bear on one man. And this is really one of the only times or one of the only instances, I guess, in the study of crime where we can see like the entire weight of a nation or a society be shifted because of the decisions of one person. And so even though crime is very much that very broad structural cultural thing, I think that to understand what happened in the 20th century, you can't do it without spending a decent amount of time in the White House. Now, it's not the only place that we go in the book, right? There are all kinds of stories. The Black Dahlia, Charles Manson, the murder of William Desmond Taylor, um, three massive stories in Los Angeles alone that um, have nothing to do with who was in the White House at the time. So it's not the only thing, but it's a big part of it. So let's get to your boy McKinley. So a guy like McKinley, I don't think could exist today and be successful in, in presidential politics. Like McKinley won both elections without ever really going on the campaign trail. He just campaigned from his house. And so, I mean, I guess maybe you could do that today if you're just on social media 24 hours a day, like somebody we know, um, and just ran your campaign from there. But this is 1896 and 1900, and he's just having people come over to his house, giving speeches from his porch. And he won, but it wasn't on like sheer force of personality. He won because he was probably the, well, not probably, definitely the first presidential candidate that had the backing of what we now know as corporate America. Like the first person to run for office that got corporations to not just open their checkbooks at large, but to actively try to force people to vote for McKinley because the idea was that voting for the Democrat um, would be bad for business. And so the fate of America didn't rest on who had the best policies or the best ideas or what was good for the people. It was really the first instance of that 1% rearing its ugly, unwanted head. But McKinley wins. And McKinley very quickly becomes, I don't want to call him a whipping boy, but certainly at the feet of American industry. It's during this time that the idea of mass production first becomes like the driving philosophy of American industry, where instead of just basic supply and demand, we're only going to produce as much as people need, American industrialists started making way more than they needed. The calculation was that it was cheaper that way. But with all this excess goods sitting around, there was tremendous pressure placed on McKinley by American industry to open up trade internationally and try to get the United States into foreign markets. This isn't any kind of economics podcast. This is as boring to me as it is to you. While this is going on, there's a new sort of dueling power struggle in the United States. Not a power struggle. Maybe that's not the best way to frame it. So on one hand, you have labor. You have people who are workers, who are working in these factories for the industrialists who are being exploited um, in every way that capitalists have exploited workers since the beginning of capitalism. And the workers are underpaid, the workers are starving, the workers are living in terrible conditions, um, and the workers are angry about it. And the workers are trying to strike, and the workers do go on strike. And so we see 
maybe for the first time in American history. I'm honestly not sure. Massive nationwide um, unionization and striking and strike busting. We also saw the beginning or the rise of what became the anarchy movement in the United States. And so the idea of anarchy today, I find it very difficult to explain because I think people who hear that word probably associate it with just sheer chaos. And that's not really what they believed in. Um, My reading, my very admittedly maybe naive reading of anarchy kind of has like a, a slight kind of libertarian almost bend to it or maybe this massive distrust of government right stemming from Thoreau talking about living on Walden Pond as an act of peaceful resistance and that self-sufficiency was almost revolutionary it was rebelling against any sort of government control and you know that's not something that I think we think about enough right not in the libertarian sense of way because that is pretty silly again you can send me your hot takes on twitter at h-e-y-d-r-w-y-l not in the silliness of libertarianism today but more in the just the sense of i guess anarchists were really concerned with what freedom actually meant and what the relationship was between a person and their government and over time um, anarchists kind of merged with the labor movement as the labor movement was pushed further and further to the left and started taking on elements of socialism. We're going to get into that in a number of episodes into the future. So America in 1900 wasn't quite yet to civil war status, although it does get there. It does get there. There was a period of time in the early 20th century when people thought that a second civil war was inevitable and that that second civil war would not be between the states, but between labor and capital. So we see kind of the seeds being planted here. Factory owners kind of playing chicken with each other to see who can lower wages fastest, who can abuse their workers the most, who can engage in the most violent strike busting. And so while this is going on, a young man whose family had immigrated from Poland to the Midwest named, I'm going to butcher his name, so please don't send me your corrections. Leon Solgosz was a young anarchist. He had he had worked but lost his job. He was very angry, very, very angry, very, very alienated to the point of madness, practically, at the conditions of people living in the United States. And as President McKinley begins his second term in office again remember mckinley was a guy who had no problem meeting people face to face he wasn't the greatest orator. he wasn't somebody that is going to like give speeches to tens of thousands of people and and send you know people away in tears or anything like that mckinley is meeting people at at a fair i think it was and leon i'm gonna call him leon uh has a gun on him kind of hidden away and is able to get right up practically face to face with president mckinley and shot him dead so one of the questions of of the book is 
could this event happen today? And so I started this off by saying that I don't think that a guy like McKinley could be president today. Like the idea of just campaigning from your porch isn't going to happen. But philosophically, McKinley like fits right into 21st century America. McKinley is the reason that we are an empire, commercial and militarily, right? McKinley succeeded, like successfully invaded the Philippines. McKinley was president for the downfall of Spain as a global empire. The United States was the last nail in that coffin. We almost, well, we're not going to talk about those almosts yet. I don't want to spoil too much. So there's that part, right? But what I think is really interesting is that this idea of anarchy and these discussions about like what freedom actually is and what our relationship is with the governments around us and what sorts of rules really apply to us and should apply to us aren't really questions that most people want to have anymore. And it's not something that we really talk about. Um, because any time that it, it comes up in an, in an earnest way that we want to think about, like, what's our relationship with power and what is our, like, what represents a meaningful existence in the United States today, it's shouted down as, as socialism or it's un-American and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, stop complaining, be happy for what you have. And so maybe anarchy was stamped out because, like, the law and order movement in the United States is so strong. Those jackboots are strong. But, I don't know. Like, there's something there, right? Obviously not advocating for any kind of violence. It should be crystal clear in that. But, sociologically, you look around and you see massive conformity, right? So... Maybe the anarchists had something right in their own sort of twisted way. Maybe we worry so much about conformity that we are, we're kind of inducing a lot of suffering that we have, even in small ways, right? That tiny bit of suffering can feel pretty massive if you're dealing with it for a long period of time. I don't know. There's something there. So I think I have homework for you then, right? I think I want you to try to think of some way to rebel against something find some rule some tiny little thing that can create just a little ripple of chaos out there make life interesting so that's it for this week you can follow the show on twitter at strength check you can follow me if you haven't got those plugs already also on twitter at h-e-y-d-r-w-i-l i'm also on instagram now um, unfortunately, you can follow me there as well, H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. You can email the show at strengthcheckpodcast at gmail.com. The show is produced, as always, by Mark Warren. Mark looked at this around mm, 15 minutes, and we'll call it like 49 seconds and thought, this is tight. And if you happen to see Mark out in the world, say... Oh, hi, Mark. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bull****. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. (laughs) That's it for this week. Fight forever. Talk to you later.